Hey listeners, thanks for coming back for episode 3. Before we get to date number 3, I wanted to ask you a quick favor. Consider leaving us a rating, either on iTunes or Stitcher, or both. And if you're feeling loquacious, maybe even writing a short review. It'll help other people find Serial Dater amidst the sea of other lesser podcasts. Just kidding, I'm sure they're all great. Find links to iTunes and Stitcher on the show page at www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Previously on Serial Dater. In 2011, without meaning to, I ended up going on five first dates in one week. Date number one. I've nicknamed this guy Bowtie. Date number two in my five dates in one week marathon was with an airline pilot. Yes, I was about to head off to the make-believe world of graduate school, but that was second date information as far as I was concerned. In retrospect, these first two dates were fine. The same cannot be said for date number three. If my limbo-y feelings about the pilot were lukewarm, the next date would leave me in the freeze of Satan's mouth in the ninth circle of hell. During the summer of 2006, while working part-time for the San Francisco Parks and Recreation Department, a high school friend of mine, who was a disaster planner for the city, suggested I look into becoming a 911 operator. I was 22 and a year out of college without a real plan, and 911 operator sounded like as good a resume builder as any. I started reading through a brochure about the job, but I barely got halfway through the first section, which had the subheading, Is Being a 911 Dispatcher Right for You? The section detailed what one could expect as a dispatcher, and one sentence made me scuttle my plans pretty much right away. Remember, you will be talking to people on the worst day of their life, and you'll have to stay calm, reassure them, and get them the help that they need. That phrase, you will be talking to people on the worst day of their life, has stayed with me, mostly because I don't know that I would be able to stay calm and reassure them. I don't want to get too Debbie Downer here, but, like, think about what people call 911 for. People would call and get me and say, this horrible thing is happening to me, and I would be like, oh my god, that is the worst, I'm so sorry, and then I'd barf all over the very expensive computer equipment in front of me. By the way, another requirement of the 911 dispatcher job was that you had to use foot pedals to control the computer, which is another thing I can see myself screwing up, not to mention barfing on. I spent a decent amount of time thinking about worsts in preparation for this episode, and not to soften the blow before I deliver the punch, but in the realm of dating, the worst dates are not that bad. That is, in the context of other worsts. The worst job you've ever had is most likely way worse than the worst date you ever had. And, thinking about the 911 dispatchers, the worst day of your life probably makes your worst date look like a goddamn picnic. I think that part of this is definitional. A day is a day no matter what, and a job is a job, but the dateness of a date is always a questionable quality. Just go to the tvtropes.org page on the not-a-date trope, and you'll get dozens of examples. True, most of these are about one or both characters not realizing that they're on a date, but I'd argue it works on the other side, too. There's a point at which, if the date gets bad enough, it stops being a date. I don't want to get too dark thinking about it, but... I want to acknowledge that the line is there. If someone gets hit by a car on a date, 
I don't know. Do we really think of it as a date anymore? I kind of hope we don't. So when I say that date number three was really awful, don't pull out your tissues or prepare to wince as I describe a scene of horror and gore. Just pour yourself a glass of wine. I came out fine. I mean, hopefully you've realized that I've promised you a week of five dates, and how bad could this one be if I've got two more to go? Still, I don't want to downplay how much I disliked this guy and how unpleasant the hours I spent with him were. In fact, I think I'm going to need some help conveying this, so I'm going to ask Ben Schwartz's character on Parks and Recreation, John Raphael Saperstein, to bottom line it for us. How would I describe this guy? The worst! On this episode of Serial Dater, the worst date of my life. Cross my heart and hope to die. I cross my heart and hope to I cross my heart. If we can agree that there's a point at which a bad date stops being a date and just starts being a genuinely horrible experience, then figuring the worst, worst dates requires a kind of shuffleboard technique, seeing how close you can get to the edge without going over. We would have also accepted Price is Right style bidding. So I wanted to collect a sample of bad dates to see what they had in common. One of the first things that stood out was bad fashion choices, and I can't disagree. There's nothing worse than showing up and your date is wearing... Jean shorts, oversized, raggedy, like faded blue t-shirt, and um, socks and sandals. It's passe to say that your clothes say something about you, but I think on dates we can get even more specific. That your clothes are read like a text. I'd even go so far as to argue that these clothing decisions might be purposeful. Who knows, maybe Socks with Sandals guy uses his footwear as a way to screen out people who aren't die-hard adherents to the protest movement. On the other hand, maybe clothing gives us an inside track to our date's own self-image. He was wearing a trilby, which, as you may know, is the hat of the worst men in the world. Um, never wear a trilby. In this case, my friend was right because the hat denoted a much worse character flaw. He was a racist. Like, racist. Like, not even just, like, hipster, ironic racism, like, legitimately actually racist. And then there are some problems that a makeover from the queer eye for the straight guy guys can't fix. Like, this friend whose date had taken her to a house party where there was only one bathroom. There were a lot of people there at this point, so the line was pretty long. I was standing in this line, waiting, really had to pee, and, um... I waited for a long time to get to the front of the line, and I was next in line, um, and this guy I was on the date with came over and, you know, was kind of like, hey, what you doing? Found you. I was just out for talking to friends or whatever, and um, kind of making small talk with me in line, and then um, the person came out of the bathroom, and it was my turn, and he totally went in the bathroom and took my spot. And I was like, what a fucking dick. This seems to be another fairly common occurrence, where the other person just seems to have some fundamental misunderstanding about what's appropriate for a date. To put it bluntly, they just don't get it. He proceeded to, as he kind of walked me sort of home after we had like a cup of tea, 
He proceeded to order, I think, Indian takeout for himself while he was still walking me home. It was just very weird. Or, for instance, not getting that a date is really just supposed to be for the people who agreed to go on the date. So we're on the bus and she starts talking to this guy. He's a nice guy. I start talking to him. We're having a good time. And then she kind of invites him along for the date. And uh, I sort of didn't know what to do. I was a little flustered. And so instead of saying, like, no, what the fuck, I'm like, you know, I go along with it. Especially if the add-on is someone's ex. He sort of starts um, getting aggressive with one of these friends. Kind of things start to get a little weird. Um, and then uh, it kind of comes out um, that this is his ex-girlfriend who, at our first date, he spent a lot of time uh, telling me about how ugly their breakup was and how totally over he, over it he is. But, you know, like in that way where he's like so over it, you can tell that he's like definitely, definitely not over it. In fact, I think we can all agree that any discussion of a former relationship is basically off the table, right? His ex-girlfriend's ex-boyfriend was the comedian Carrot Top. So this essentially meant that he thought that I would be impressed by the fact that he was, you know, his ex-girlfriend, he was Carrot Top Sloppy Seconds. That's the key here. Carrot Top Sloppy Seconds is, I think, what I referred to him later as. That goes double if the old relationship has a direct bearing on why this person is on a date with you. He then proceeds to tell me that his ex-girlfriend had broken up with him because she was transitioning from a female to a male and recently had taken steps to appear more male-like. And he was very confused by this because he was still attracted to his ex-girlfriend. And he didn't actually know what to do, but had come to the conclusion that the best thing to do about it was to get a good old-fashioned titty fuck to remind his penis that it liked females and not males. And he was hoping that I was down to help him with that situation. In fact, by far the most common sin on these bad dates was violation of the dating commandment, thou shalt not only talk about yourself. And then she immediately began to tell me about how her dog had died the previous afternoon, how she liked to smoke weed and do psychedelics in a local park, how her sister hated all of her ex-boyfriends, and how she had recently moved into a house previously owned by a Scott Stapp, lead singer of Creed. All told, the date went on for about four hours, in which time I spoke maybe five times. All he did was talk about himself, just like constantly, just on and on and on about himself. And like all the things that you tell yourself you're not going to say on the first date, you know, like um, all the stories of past relationships, all of his negative qualities. At some point, he's telling me about how he left his fiance. In thinking about all of these in total, and throwing in my own bad experiences, I think what a bad date comes down to is an inability or unwillingness of the parties to communicate. I'm not trying to say that they chose not to communicate where they should have. On some base, even crass level, first dates are about assessing the other person. The problem is you're also being assessed, and so there's a sort of synchronized dance wherein both parties are theoretically putting forward their best selves while trying to understand the true self of the other. In a very bad essay I wrote many years ago about dating, I described it by saying it was like both parties are holding up a mask in front of their face while simultaneously trying to see behind the mask of the other. 
This problem of communication, though, is exacerbated by time and politesse. One thing I always find striking in bad date stories, even in my own, is that the person telling the story doesn't just leave. As one friend told me, And the weird part was that I didn't get up and leave when he was saying the very racist things. Why do we obligate ourselves to suffer through the dinner or drink or cup of coffee? Well, I was going to say it's the same reason we don't torture our prisoners of war, but these days that's a problematic and sort of useless comparison. We're gentle with their feelings because we hope that when we're in their position, as in it's the person sitting across from us who isn't feeling it, we hope they will practice the same kindness towards us. I owe a good amount of my early gay dating knowledge to the series Six Feet Under. David Fisher was the first gay character on television I really felt like I could relate to. In one scene, David goes on a first coffee date with a hot firefighter he met in the personal ads back in the olden days of 2002, and I remember being stunned when, at the end of the date, the guy totally shuts him down. Um, I gotta get to work. Listen, it's been great meeting you. Yeah, this was fun. Would you like to do it again? I don't think so. You seem like a really nice guy, but I gotta be honest, I didn't feel much of a spark. Can't make it happen if it's not there, right? At the time, I was heartbroken for David and furious at the guy. What an asshole. Even rewatching it, I can feel some of that teenage anger. But now I can also see the firefighter in a new light. I still don't think I could cut things off so surgically, but I can appreciate where he's coming from. And, of course, had I been able to learn a lesson or two from him, I might have saved myself from date number three, Argyle. Of all my emails, text messages, instant messages, and other electronic data detritus, there's the least available about Argyle, and yet, of these five, I probably remember this date the most vividly, and this is why. It was horrible. In the other Serial podcast, you know, Serial, Sarah Koenig points out in episode one, is that if some significant event happened that day, you remember that, plus you remember the entire day much better. Oh, I remember all right. I suppose the one thing I can say in Argyle's favor is that, unlike Bo Tai and the pilot, he agreed pretty readily to meet up in real life. I alluded to this in an earlier podcast, but one aspect of internet dating that can be absolutely maddening is the difficulty of getting a guy to manifest himself in the real world. I'm not proud to admit it, although I suppose this whole exercise is kind of that, but I have in my life corresponded with a guy for almost three months before I gave up on him. Actually, I wasn't even the one who gave up. One day he just messaged me and told me he was living in California. I thought it would be useful to put the different amounts of effort it takes into perspective and created what I'm going to call the habeas corpus scale you know, produce the body. A one on the habeas corpus scale is probably the most common in my experience, where it takes some time to go through the initial motions of a conversation, then dropping the, we should get a drink sometime, and then laboriously coordinating schedules and agreeing on a location. The whole process can take weeks. I have definitely on more than one occasion messaged someone saying, 
hey, haven't heard from you in a while, as in 17 days. Hope everything's okay. Let me know if you still want to get a drink sometime. And they've messaged me back being like, sure. A two is similar to a one, but taking place over a reasonable number of days, like two or three, instead of weeks. I don't know why it's not always like this, but it isn't. A three on the habeas corpus scale is someone who wants to meet up, like, right away. I should note that in this scale, I'm not really thinking about meetups that happen exclusively for sex. It's not always, what are you doing tonight? But the threes will have a date planned and scheduled before 24 hours have passed. I suppose I could make two more additions here. A zero will never manifest himself in reality, like that asshole who moved to San Francisco. A four, on the other hand, is someone who has broken into your house and poured you a drink and says, want to go on a date right now? Thankfully, I have no experience with that. Argyle was a three. I don't know, maybe being a three should be a red flag, but by this point in my week, I had a dating-related adrenaline rush, like I'd just bungee-jumped and was now like, yeah, what's next? Bring it on! I'll wrestle that bear! I meant, like, you know, a real bear out in nature, but I guess it works both ways. The other thing I should say about Argyle is that he was the last date planned, even if he fell third in the rotation. He messaged me on Connection on Friday, April 1st, which I guess might be another bad omen, and we planned to meet up the following afternoon. Afternoon dates can be a little tricky. If they go well, they can be awesome because you just let the date extend itself like a telescope deeper and deeper into the evening. But if they don't go well, and, like me, you haven't pre-established that you have an activity to go to afterwards, it's harder to bail without delivering the hammer stroke, like the firefighter did to David in Six Feet Under. Our date started at the Belgian Beer Bar, an NYU haunt right off of Washington Square Park. The bar was crowded for a Saturday afternoon, but the weather was just starting to turn nice and everyone seemed buoyed by that high you get for surviving the winter. Argyle was well put together, Wearing an argyle cardigan, obviously, a collared shirt underneath, horn-rimmed glasses, and those skinny cords that I just don't understand how people fit into them, there seems to be just enough room for the femur and a layer of skin. His arms swiveled forward on his shoulders like a transformer, and I had the impression that if I wanted to, I could fold him in on himself and store him in a comic book long box. Also, he smiled the entire time, kind of like he was in a stupor, to the point where it felt less like an expression of happiness and more like a condition. Because the profiles on Connection were pretty sparse, there was more of that getting-to-know-you material to cover. I made the mistake of starting with television. So, you got any favorite TV shows? Oh, I don't have a TV. A few things to notice here about his response. First, he hadn't answered my question, He'd answered the question, do you have a TV, which would be a strange question for anyone to ask unless they were very unsubtly casing your apartment. It would have been different if I'd said, what's your favorite band, and he'd replied, oh, I'm deaf. But even in the halcyon days of 2011, saying you didn't have a TV as a way of saying you didn't watch it was like saying you didn't listen to music because your Victrola was broken. Second, he said it in a self-important way, as if what he'd meant to say was, Oh, I have no truck with that nonsense, which is just a generically obnoxious comment, but 
Third, the guy seemed to genuinely like me, so why on earth was he trying to prove to me that he was above television, a subject that A, I brought up, and B, he had no idea of my position on? The best I could come up with was that he thought it was some sort of a test that he needed to pass, as if I intended the following exchange. Do you have any favorite TV shows? Yes, I love The Wire. Ha ha, tricked you. People who watch TV are awful. Date over. I probably could have rescued the next few hours of my life from awful torture had I said something along those lines, but we were only 15 minutes into the date, and while I already had a bad taste in my mouth, it was, this dish is too salty, bad, not, I need to get to the bathroom so I can purge, bad. Not yet, anyway. Still, I was fairly certain that this was going to be our only date, and if possible I wanted to clue him into that fact. So I suspended my don't tell guys about grad school on the first date rule, and told him that most likely I was going to be leaving New York in the fall. Oh, for what? I'm going for an MFA in fiction. You know, I've been planning on applying for an MFA program. Here's some nice common ground, I thought. I started relating my whole MFA application saga, starting with my failed first attempt the year before, and then on my second try, taking the advice of my friend Martin and signing up for the Sackett Street Writers Workshop MFA Application Prep Workshop. Quick plug, this workshop, led by Heather Amy O'Neill, was amazing. Anyone thinking of applying to a creative writing MFA program who doesn't already have a long list of publications should most definitely consider it. I told Argyle about how helpful it was for getting feedback on my manuscripts, troubleshooting my personal statements, and polishing my application, not to mention the fact that the professor personally helped me fine-tune my list of schools and wrote one of my letters of recommendation. It was really one of the best decisions I've ever made. Oh, I don't think I need any help getting into an MFA program. If the graph charting my enjoyment of the date had taken a dip after the television comment, it was now plunging downwards in freefall. At the time, I was just kind of offended and turned off by his statement, said in a way that suggested that it was cute and a little silly that I needed a creative boost to get into an arts program. But as I record this now, I find myself more and more pissed off by his cavalier stance towards the difficulty of writing. Now, I'm not going to pretend for a second that writing is hard in the way that many other jobs are hard. I remember on the first day of grad school chatting with the other incoming students about what job or life they'd left to come to Tallahassee. Several had just gotten their bachelor's degrees, a few had been teachers, others had come from desk jobs. And then there was one guy who, when I asked him what he'd been doing, said, digging graves. Not that I needed this gravedigger to remind me that there are more challenging things to do than write. My bar for hard jobs has always been set by my mom, Karen, who's a high-risk obstetrician. The best way to describe what it is she does is to think about the way that professional daredevils will take an already insane thing, say, jumping a motorcycle over a row of 20 cars, and then adding an extra element of danger, like setting those cars on fire. In my mom's case, she deals with childbirth, which, if you don't think it's insane, beautiful, sure, but totally batshit crazy, then you need to go re-watch The Miracle of Life. 
Except in her specialty, it's childbirth with the added elements of diabetes, preterm birth, or HIV. So when I say that writing is hard, what I'm really getting at is that writing something, anything, is harder than writing nothing. And writing something good is harder than writing something bad. What grinds my gears, to this day apparently, about Argyle's attitude was his assumption that writing isn't challenging, that it doesn't require dedication and persistence and sacrifice and doesn't, for God's sake, sometimes need some help. If I could go back in time to that moment and say one thing to Argyle, and for once I am so, so grateful that the laws of quantum mechanics make this impossible, I would relate to him the sage words of Janine Capo-Crusset, one of my professors at Florida State. No one is waiting for your story. She meant it as a way of reminding us that we need to write for ourselves, first and foremost, but it stuck with me as an important thing to keep in mind when it comes to writing as a career. There is nobody in the entire literary world, from academy to industry, who is sitting at their desk clicking refresh on their email until my manuscript shows up. Being a successful writer isn't necessarily a triumph over adversity, but it is a triumph over all the other things in life that demand our time and attention. Our jobs, our families, our laundry, our sleep. It's a triumph of self-discipline, of prioritization, of putting your butt in the seat. Actually, I recently learned that there's a German word for this because, of course, there is. Sitzfleisch, the ability to keep your ass in the chair. For some people, that comes naturally. For me, I needed a little extra help, but I got it. Actually, on second thought, if I could go back in time and say one thing to Argyle, it would be this. Fuck you. You have no idea what you're talking about. It was fucked up. I felt like I was trapped in a slow-motion instant replay of a fumble, knowing that the play is over but unable to speed up time and get it over with. For those of you keeping track, that's my second sports metaphor in this podcast series. After we finished our beers, he suggested going for a walk. It was early April, and a walk outside sounded weirdly pleasant, so I agreed. Plus, if things got bad enough, I could just, you know, run away. We trampled all around the West Village and up into the meatpacking district, and the conversation continued to indicate that we had nearly nothing in common. Or rather, he liked a very narrow bandwidth of things that I also liked, but detested anything else. So, who are your favorite authors? Oh, I only read nonfiction. What about music? I'm finally getting into the new Bell and Sebastian album. I pretty much just listen to opera. Did you see any of the best picture movies? I don't watch any movie made after 1975. I was operating under the assumption that he was finding me as incompatible as I was finding him, and yet, when we were walking down an empty side street, he bumped into me kind of hard, pushing me over a few feet. I looked up at him as if to say, did you trip? But he was still smiling that overlarge manic grin, and it took my brain a few extra seconds to realize that he'd run into me intentionally. It was some sort of love shove, like out of a teenage 90s high school rom-com, and the look on his face clearly said that he'd like me to return the gesture, which, if television and movies have taught us anything, should lead to some making out. I had to stifle the sudden and nearly overwhelming urge to say, date over. Instead, I gave a short, brief laugh, hoping to convey that I was interpreting him as having stumbled and that there was no other way to interpret that gesture. If he was disappointed, it didn't show. 
I did, however, allow myself to walk us straight to the nearest subway station. It took about five minutes, and the whole time I was trying to figure out exactly what was going on. He apparently really liked me, even though he had told me that everything I was into was stupid and kitschy and beneath him. It was like he had a pair of headphones on turned up all the way and couldn't hear anything that was going on around him and was talking really loudly. Except it wasn't happening on an audio level, but on a social and cultural one. He was unable to hear any of my cues and couldn't temper his output. I spent plenty of time wondering why I'm single, but at least I can come up with several legitimate, logical reasons. He must have wondered the same thing, but was just genuinely stumped. Can't you see there's a life to lead? Please just smile for me. At the station, I said I had to make a phone call, hoping that if we said goodbye on the street corner instead of the subway platform, or God forbid if we ended up taking the train in the same direction, the last minute change of venue would throw him off and I'd get away with a handshake. No such luck. He said that he'd had a really good time, and I lied like a well-trained dog and said I did too. He came in for what looked like a hug, and I thought, fine, one hug, no harm, no foul, and then it'll be over. But at the last moment, I realized he was actually going in for a kiss. Actually, it was the moment after the last moment, because I was already moving my head into hug position, and he ended up kissing me on the very corner of my mouth. You know, that part of the mouth that's really susceptible to getting stray tomato sauce on it when consuming spaghetti? I couldn't tell if he could feel my blood run cold, but when we backed up, he was still smiling that stupid fucking smile. And I was doing my best to serve up some more, that was funny, wasn't it? Ha ha ha. I inserted a quick, take it easy. And this was the moment where he seemed to realize that the date had indeed come to an end, and not a good one. I've been debating about whether this date actually deserves the title of worst since I've been revisiting it, and I think that it does, in spite of the fact that it was really just boring. I've been on weirder dates with guys where things never went anywhere, but somehow the weirdness saved it from being as unpleasant as this one. This date was just banal, which is saying something, considering that, in general, my default position in life is that everybody has something interesting about them. I suppose on some objective, emotionally removed level, I still believe that about Argyle, wherever he is now. So why couldn't I push through his banality to find whatever that interesting thing was? I've come up with two reasons, and they're related. The first was that he just didn't seem to hear anything that I said. Anytime I expressed an interest in something, he poo-pooed it. It was almost like a dream where all of a sudden no one can understand anything you're saying, and that loss of communication is a little scary. As I tried to pull away, he kept trying to get closer. Not physically, unless you count the love shove, but for every signal I sent that said, thanks but no thanks, all he received was, thumbs up, high five. I felt like Marge Simpson trying to order coffee in Australia. I'll just have a cup of coffee. Beer it is. No, I said coffee. Beer. Coffee. Beer. C-O. Bay. The second reason was this. He wanted to put his tongue in my mouth. In my mouth! Thinking about it now gives me the shivers. Maybe it would have been different if we were totally tanked at the end of the night, but in the sober spring daylight of the west side, the idea made me want to spit like I'd accidentally swallowed a bug.
So, a little crestfallen, Argyle said goodbye, walked down the steps into the subway, and disappeared into the station. Almost as a reflex, because I'm not really a mean guy, I wiped his kiss off the corner of my mouth. Maybe it's a dadoi statement that lack of communication in a relationship, and I mean that in its most broad terms, is a problem. So one would think that the antidote to that would be a lot of communication, right? Wrong. Next time on Serial Dater. Dater is written, produced, and edited by me. Special thanks to Fatih Ahmed, Anna Marquardt, Shayna Heller, Tess Cornfield, Bernie Beckerman, Chris Jensen, Heather Lang, and Tess Gundogu. Extra special thanks to the Petticoat Lane Writers Residency and the Michael and Karen Beckerman Fund for aspiring podcasters. Argyle, played by Adam Enright, music by Prom Date. You can buy their album, Portraits, at www.promdatemusic.com. For more information about Serial Dater, please visit our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Serial Dater.